Welcome to Civil Discourse, a podcast where participants are free to share their ideas, empathize with other perspectives, and who intend to advance to a better solution to fix a societal ill. We will focus on topics that are particularly complicated. In a time where information is from sources more opinionated than ever, our mission is to find solutions and goals to accelerate the nation's progress with cultural impunity. I'm your host, Todd Furness. Well, hello to, to you all and welcome to Civil Discourse hosted by Todd Furness. In prior editions of this podcast, I've had a guest and the purpose of that is to derive from the guest and, and an idea around a problem and, or to get a perspective on a problem. In this instance, what we're doing is we're just going to describe the problem. And the, core, the purpose of that is for me to lay it out for you, the listener, and then tee it up for subsequent conversation. So this is kind of a foundational podcast, if you will, uh, something that is intended to lay a basis for future discussion. So forgive me for uh, being a little bit um, solo here today, but the idea, again, is just to lay the foundation for an issue that I think we have all become uh, alerted to, or many of us have become alerted to, and some of us have become alarmed by. And that is the issue of broadband access. Now, broadband access is not not exactly a toe-tapper of a conversation piece. Um, And I'm probably the guy you least want to be seated next to at a dinner party because I may uh, trap you into one of these conversations about issues like broadband access. But to me, it's really important because it addresses an issue where it's a focal point for the distinction between those who have access to the American dream and those who don't. And increasingly what's happening is the American dream is either pursued or conveyed or communicated uh, through broadband access, through web access. And it's hard to imagine that the web is just barely 30 years old, but in fact it is. And our entire economy has largely moved towards uh, communicating its goods and services through uh, through the access to the internet and through the access to the web, but the f- transmission speeds are increasingly important. As we've seen a growth in web pages, web page densities, and that's both for mobile and for desktop. And so what that means is, and I should also point out, it's also uh, grown substantially with regard to video and audio. So you've got a lot more content, a lot more data that has to be transferred from the point of origin to the point of terminus. And if we're unable to get access to that data quickly, we get um, either frustrated or bored, or we just don't, we're not, we're not able to get access to the information at all. And those aren't necessarily good outcomes. It's become critically important in the time of the pandemic because what we've seen is people aren't able to engage in remote learning effectively. So reading comprehension rates, math uh, rates have all fallen fairly precipitously. I'm here in Dallas, uh, Texas, where the reading levels have drawn really, really down. And it's unfortunate because I'm fearful that we're going to lose not one, but at least two years of of education to uh, young students who aren't able to effectively learn uh, through through remote access to teachers and to schools. So what do we do about that? And what, what's the real issue? The real issue is that a goodly number of our, num- of our population 
doesn't have affordable access to broadband. And the reality is we don't really know what access people do and don't have for a whole bunch of reasons. And I'll kind of go into that in just a minute. So first of all, let's figure out what broadband means. Okay, so what does broadband mean? Broadband is a definition of a up, of an upload speed and a download speed for data. In other words, how fast does data go from point A to point B and from point B back to point A? So the download speeds are the rate at which you receive information. The uploads, upload speeds are the rate at which you convey information. So if you're watching a movie or if you're engaged in a Zoom call or a Skype or some other form of video conferencing, uh, then you have a pretty high requirement for bandwidth, meaning you have a lot of up and download speed requirements in order to get that information communicated effectively. If you don't, then what happens is you've got a degradation uh, of the quality of the signal, and that causes either an inability to actually understand what's being said or to have a continuity in the messages you're delivering or you're receiving. So the message, the information may be choppy, it may be unintelligible, all sorts of uh, unfortunate things can happen with regard to the transmission of that data. So what do you have to do next? You have to figure out how to solve for that. How do we get broadband access to be more ubiquitous and more affordable? And what is broadband defined as being? So let's start with the definition. In 1999, the Federal Communications Commission decided that the definition of broadband would be, if you can believe this, 200 kilobytes up and down. So the, the download speeds would be 200K and the upload speeds would be 200K. Now, for those of you old enough to remember, that was like good stuff if you were an AOL member and you were trying to use dial-up and uh, that gave you access to a whole world of unknown opportunities. Well, today, that's, that doesn't qualify as broadband whatsoever. In fact, in the year 2010, the FCC updated the definition of broadband to four meg down, so four, megabits, four megabytes down and uh, one megabit up. Now, what that means is that you went from 200K up and down, which is symmetrical, to four meg uh, down and one meg up, which is asymmetrical. And what ISPs figured out or internet service providers figured out is, and the telecommunications services providers figured out was that you needed to get information, so the download speed needed to be faster than the upload speed. So what they did is they toggled the technology so that the download speeds would be faster and the upload speeds would be slower. So if you're having to allocate resources on the telecom lines, that's the way they did it. Well, that standard is important and it was relevant at the time. But what's happened now is that the standard was changed in 2015. And in 2015, they changed the standard from 10 megabits down to 25 megabits down and from one megabit up to three megabits up. So substantial improvement on both the download speed and the upload speed, but still a long way from what uh, one might expect today, given the fact that the good folks at Zoom as recently as two days ago was announced on The Verge, um, that Zoom wouldn't say, would say that 25 down is not adequate 
and not adequate resource for a Zoom call for one user. Okay, so what they're saying is a video conference call for one person would require more bandwidth than 25 meg down and three megabits up. Now that's pretty important because a lot of, a lot of today's economy, education, and healthcare is being performed through Zoom or Zoom-like technologies. So if you're doing remote learning, if you're doing uh, if you're interviewing for a job, if you're doing telemedicine, then all those things are impacted by your up and your download speeds. And so what I would suggest to you is, and this is why I'm troubled by it, is that a goodly portion of, of American society is precluded from the American dream expressed in the form of education, jobs, and healthcare if they don't have broadband access. So I'll say it again. A goodly segment of our population is precluded from the American dream. In fact, they're precluded in large, uh, to a large extent from contemporary, from the contemporary economy if they don't have access to broadband because they don't have access to job opportunities, educational opportunities, or healthcare opportunities. Uh, because of this lack of access. And so we have to go then say, well, how, how big of a problem is this? And the answer is, we don't know. And we don't know for a couple of reasons. One is, we don't have the ability to, to do field engineering tests broadly across the country. And the FCC hasn't actually um, developed a sufficient understanding of what consumers are actually, are actually obtaining. So there's a, two problems. One is, what is the ISP or the Internet Service Provider claiming that they're doing in terms of a service being offered to the community? And the second thing is, what are consumers actually able to buy? Because there's a question of affordability. So what are the ISPs saying they're delivering? So advertising, what are the advertised speeds? And the second thing is, what are consumers actually able to buy because they can afford it? And we've done some preliminary research, and what we found is is very is not good at all. It's saying, first of all, you can't rely on what the I, what the internet service providers are communicating, because those are at best um, the uh, the best outcome possible, and which means it's unlikely that you're actually getting it. There are technology reasons for that. There are topography reasons for that, and there are a variety of other reasons for that. But at the, the, what we can say with certainty is that the advertised, advertised rates are the best case scenario for what somebody in, a, in an area that delivered theoretical coverage is getting. In other words, somebody may be saying they're delivering this, but that's the best case scenario. The second thing is we've learned that in many instances, or at least in some instances, the information that the Inform uh, in internet service providers are providing to the FCC is incorrect. It's either intentionally incorrect or it's unintentionally correct. There's a well-known report that came out about a company up in New York that claimed they were delivering service to 62 million people. And in fact, they were only delivering service to a million people. So what did the FCC do? They gave them a fine. 
Well, the fine wasn't very significant in light of the amount of money that the company was making, but the real issue is that a lot of people were misled about what was available, which is the point that the FCC is now making, which is that they really don't know how many service providers are in a particular area, whether or not there's actually competition, and specifically, is there price competition for internet access or web access? So the question is, how do we solve for this? How do we identify it? Well, there are a couple of different ways we can go about this. What the FCC has recently done is they've done some outreach directly to consumers to say, hey, we're asking you what you're getting. Well, it's a little bit of an irony because how are they doing that <laughs> over the web? So how would you actually know? It's very difficult to discern. What we can do in another way is we can back into the number by observing, okay, what is the cost of the access and how does that relate as a function of the income of the area theoretically covered. And if the cost is too high as a percentage of income, then, then you can pretty quickly identify that it's unlikely that they're able to get it or that they are receiving that kind of a service. So what we'd, obser we'd, we'd observe is that in fact, too many people are unable to buy broadband service on a regular basis because, or on a monthly subscription basis because they just can't afford it. We found in some of our preliminary research <laughs> that uh, consumers may be paying north of 3% for, for internet access, or for broadband access. And in some instances, we found consumers paying over 8% of their monthly income for broadband access. Well, that's just too high. It's, that's, that means that they're not able to pay for something else. Uh, and it's, in fact, some of our numbers show that this is more than they would pay for healthcare, more than they might pay for utilities like water or electricity. It's more than they might pay for education. So that's clearly too much money, too much of an expense for consumers to incur in order to get access to broadband. So on the one hand, we don't know how good coverage is, we do know, however, that the business models that are employed by ISPs are probably running into a brick wall. In other words, the amount of capital that they would deploy has to get a return. And that return on capital has to be sufficient to satisfy the shareholders and the executive management so that they can make good decisions around where to deploy capital in one location versus another. Well, if the number of subscribers who are going to pay the subscription price is too few in order to warrant the investment, then that means that you're not going to put the you're not going to invest the capital necessary to deploy the service offering. In other words, I'm not going to make this service available if people aren't going to buy it at the prices I've modeled so that I can get a return on my capital. And that means that that people don't get access to broadband because the ISPs are unwilling to incur that capital cost given that rate of return. So what, what, that, what we now look at is we see, okay, broadband is expensive, too expensive for people across a broad spectrum of our economy. The inability to, for us to get broadband to that spectrum of our economy is cost, maybe cost prohibitive without incentives and if we don't get broadband access to that segment of the economy, then they're going to perhaps be forever precluded from the American dream. And that's not good.
Now, this is not a race question. This is not a political question. This ought to be a universal question that our society needs to answer. And it doesn't mean that it's government's responsibility to step in and solve the problem. However, I do think that we have to solve the problem in some way, shape, manner, or form, because we cannot, as a, as a nation or as a community, afford for some of our number to fall behind. That adversely affects everybody. We need everybody to participate in the economy. We need everybody to have access to jobs, to education, and to uh, healthcare opportunities. We need everybody to be, as, as certainly as uh, to the fullest extent possible, to be healthy, educated, employed, and successful. And so as an aspiration, we need to provide the tools that make that a possibility, if not a probability. I'm not saying it's going to happen for everybody, but we certainly ought to have that as an aspiration and as a goal. So what I would advocate is we need to start exploring new models. We need to see private-public partnerships uh, form. We need to see sponsored uh, base stations and sponsored technology spots and innovation areas where we can deploy the technology and we can distribute signal in a way that gives more people access than, than we have today. It's not going to be the big guys that are going to do this. It's going to be the little guys. It's going to be the innovators in our community that figure this problem out. But I want to highlight it today as a problem that is ubiquitous, more ubiquitous than we like, might like to imagine. I just did a report here in Dallas County where we looked at this problem, and we observed that 80%, almost 80% of our community does not have access to the 2015 standard of broadband access. And what that means is people are going to fall behind. And that gap is only gonna get wider, it's not gonna get narrower. And as we get ready to implement a new standard for broadband access, it's only gonna be more problematic for those who are unable to afford broadband access as more technology and more content distributed and the people who have access to that content are going to be more advantaged and the people who don't have access to that content are gonna be more disadvantaged. And so the question that I put to politicians and community leaders and business leaders across our community as well as the nation is, what are we gonna do about this? How are we gonna solve this problem? It's at the top of everybody's mind I can go to the Federal Reserve Bank's website and they'll talk about connectivity being an issue. I can talk to business leaders and they'll talk about connectivity being an issue. I can talk to regional chambers of commerce and they'll talk about connectivity of the issue is an issue. Uh, we'll talk to educational facilities and they'll talk about connectivity as an issue. But the, pro the reality is we're not moving fast enough on this problem. And I'll give you an example of this. Um, the weekend of December 29, President, then President Trump signed into law a bill that allocated roughly $300 million for uh, expansion of broadband access into rural communities and other underserved communities. So the idea is we're going to spend $300 million, which is as uh, we're going to give them in the form of grants for pilot programs to expand broadband access. Well, that sounds good until you get down one layer below that. And you say, okay, well, how is that grant going to be given? Well, the grant is going to be given as a through a competitive process by the Department of Commerce. 
okay, the Department of Commerce is going to award a grant through a competitive process. Well, it's actually not the Department of Commerce. It's going to be uh, a, an organization inside the Department of Commerce called the uh, Telecommunication and Information Administrative. Okay. Uh, strange name for an organization, but that's what it's called. Well, it's actually not them. It's going to be an organization underneath of them called the Office of Minority Broadband Initiatives. Now, what started off was with rural expansion became minority initiatives, and that's a little bit of a disconnect, but it's important for, it doesn't really matter to me if it's minority initiatives or rural initiatives. At the end of the day, we need to get broadband access expanded to everybody in the country. But the, here's the problem. The problem is that the Office of Minority Broadband Initiatives has not yet been formed as of February 1. I don't know if it's been formed as of March 1. I don't know if it will be formed by April 1. But if the organization that's got the responsibility to award the grants through a competitive process has not yet been formed, or if it's been formed in the last 30 days, still wouldn't have the manpower or woman power to go off and, and, uh, and execute the, the responsibilities. If it hasn't been formed yet, it's still a long way away from being able to issue the grants. Well, that's thing number one, but thing number two is, what's the competitive process part about this? Well, the competitive process is something that's also a little bit troublesome in that it may or may not produce the best technology, but it will certainly cause delays. What do I mean by that? Well, competitive process likely will go through, and I could this may they may do something different, but this is the way it would likely occur, through the federal acquisition regulation process. Okay, Federal acquisition regulations are how the federal government buys stuff, or in this case, gives grants. And so usually that process, and it may be different in this instance, but usually that process includes the following. There's a request for information. And in other words, there's a, an opportunity for the public to comment on how this ought to occur. And then once that's, that information is, is requested and gathered, then what happens is the information has to be evaluated. And then they put out what's called a request for quote. And this is kind of giving you signals and guidelines on in terms of what the price would be if you went down this particular path. So there's a framework developed for what the quote would be about, and then there's a quote submitted, and then that usually leads to something called a request for proposals or an RFP. Once the request for proposals is submitted, there's a time period allowed for people to respond to the request for proposals. And then there frequently is a modification of the request for proposals because the issuing body, in this instance, the Office of Minority Broadband Initiatives, might learn something in the request that causes them to revise the request for proposals itself. So there may be a revision to the request for proposals, which then presents a new opportunity for folks to submit new proposals. Those need to be evaluated, and then there would be something called a best and final offer, which is a request for a best and final offer where the prospects submit their proposals in a best and final with a best and final price and a request. Now, when you get to that point, 
those would need to be evaluated. That evaluation period usually takes 30 to 60 days. And in fact, each of these processes or steps in the process may take anywhere from 30 days to 90 or 120 days longer. So at the end of the day, when we talk about this pilot program that's been funded through a bill that was signed in December, when would money actually be deployed and the pilot program be started? Well, it could be, according to my friends on the Hill, it could be two to five years from now. Two to five years, that's a substantial part of a generation because you've got people not able to access broadband today. The pilot programs wouldn't start for potentially two to five years, and that's just the pilot. That's not the rollout. So you still have more time to wait before you get access in the, it really delivered into the community. So what we're really trying to figure out is how do we accelerate this process? And this is kind of the foundation for what I anticipate will be a series of other podcasts on this topic where we, we ask this question of people on the assumption, because I believe, firmly believe it to be the case, that broadband access is important, it's a, it's a good thing, and we ought to have as, as ubiquitous of access or as, as uh, predominant access as possible at the highest speeds possible for as many people as possible in the foregoing future. And it ought to be a tech, uh, based on technology that is upgradable so that as new technologies emerge where we can have better and better, faster and faster bandwidths, that we have the ability to deploy that through the infrastructure that's being built. Now, that leads us into the infrastructure bill, which I don't want to go into in too much detail, but I'm not suggesting again that this is a government function. I believe that we need to figure this out uh, as communities, as counties, as cities, as states, and as a nation as to how we want to get broadband access delivered more broadly across our nation so that people are not precluded from the American dream. So with that, I'll sign off for this uh, issue of the podcast. I'm uh, delighted to look forward to future editions of this where we can dive into this topic with thought leaders and, and experts and really come to understand how we might be able to advance the rollout of this important technology to more people at a cost-affordable cost rate as quickly as we, we can. Thank you for your time today and I greatly appreciate it. Thanks for watching this week's episode of Civil Discourse. To learn more about today's topic or our guest, visit www.the60percentsolution.com or www.tfip.group.